We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Ben Simon Thomas, co-founder and CEO of W3LL, or Well, which is connecting people with effective, evidence-based solutions that improve well-being. Early in his career, he worked in preventative medicine to try and change people's lifestyles so they could be more healthy. That inspired him to come back to healthcare and form well. Ben's by nature an optimistic person, and that sometimes can get him into trouble, especially when coming to picking a co-founder. What he has learned about picking a co-founder is that you have to have the attitude that everything is possible while not dwelling on the past. It's also important to feel at ease with your potential co-founder which has a lot to do with transparency of both actions and being honest that you won't have all the answers. It's the ability to hear options, good or bad, and then come together to solve problems. That's the hallmark of a good founder pairing. Ben has a master's in Buddhist psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies that is driving what he's doing at well, which relates to health, happiness, and holding space. What that all boils down to is how our thoughts affect our well-being. We cover a lot of ground from 3D printing to mindfulness to a person's well-being. It's a fascinating conversation about how to be more healthy, happy, and hopeful. You will not want to miss this one if you want to have more well-being in your life. Now, let's get better together. Ben Simon Thomas, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Ben, uh, we actually met through Founders Network as part of my, uh, I don't know, my kind of mission, I guess, <laughs> to get to know everyone in the San Francisco chapter. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that a little later and kind of what you're doing now. But before we we do that, why don't you kind of give us the nickel tour of how you became an entrepreneur and kind of what you're doing now and how you how you're doing what you're doing now? Yeah, well, I'm happy to share it. So um, it's been an interesting journey, like probably all founders would say. But I started out um, working in the healthcare and preventative medicine space early on. I worked with Dr. Dean Ornish at the Preventative Medicine Research Institute. He was a pioneer in kind of lifestyle modifications affecting um, people with heart disease and then ultimately other types of cancer, breast and prostate, breast and prostate cancer. And from there, I did um, moved into healthcare consulting um, and worked in a variety of different um, applications of healthcare consulting. And I kind of came to entrepreneurship and startups, um, not in my early 20s, but maybe in my you know mid-30s. Um, and it was a place that I always, um, uh, I felt like I'd come home to. Um, I really liked the, the pace of startups. I really liked um, the challenges and um, that come with being in a startup, running a startup. Um, specifically, I like that you're learning every day. Now, there's not a single day where you don't have a new challenge. I mean, I, I like to say it's kind of like um, getting your real world MBA um, at, with every project, every so startup true. that you have. So true. Yeah. So true. Yeah. So, so um, you know, from there, I worked in um, a couple different startups, one in social commerce, where we were doing like reverse auctioning to bring a lot of people together to basically create buying power. So like if you were a student at a university, you could bring a thousand students together, you could bring that deal to Apple and you could say, Apple, we've got a thousand people who want to buy a computer. Um, will you give us a discount, cut on the logistics, the advertising costs, all this other stuff. Um, that was probably my first experience with some significant founder issues. So I'll just say like, oh. uh, you know, I, 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 you know, we all have these stories um, oh, we do. We do. Uh, of co-founders and things like that. But I was, we were about to raise a million dollars and the guy that I was co-founding this company with said, I just want to give you a heads up. I've got um, uh, another person in Israel. This was an Israeli guy um, that um, thinks he's 50% owner in this project. And I thought you should know that. And I, and I just, <laughs> you know, we, we, and the person that I had brought in was somebody that was actually um, a closer friend. And I said, well, this is unacceptable. And so it makes you realize that as bright and as rosy as things can be all along, you know, that you're always going to have some, some rain clouds and some hurricanes and some, you know, some <laughs> catastrophes. Yeah, yeah wow. for sure. Wow. For sure. But, but, you know, that really was um, a great project. And, um, you know, we had a team that was one of the, um, I know recently at the Founders Network, they talked about how, there's a great, it's a great resource to use interns, right? To go out and recruit and to find interns. And that was one of my first experiences early on. I had about a team of 30 um, college and master's level students working on this project from all over the United States, actually the world. Wow. Um, and we, we actually put together a campaign 
um, it was at the time when the New Orleans Hornets were actually going to be moved, the NBA team from New Orleans, that the owner was threatening to sell the New Orleans Hornets. So we put together a campaign called Buy Them Hornets, where we got 10,000 people to sign up and pledge anywhere from 100 to a few thousand dollars to keep the team, to buy a minority stake, to kind of sim- symbolize their um, interest in keeping an NBA team there. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't actually happen. They sold the team, but it really showed me what you could do with some innovative thinking and harnessing um, untapped labor pool. So that was a great experience. And that kind of set me on my journey um, from there. Wow. Wow. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot to unpack. <laughs> we could talk about founder problems all day. <laughs> yeah. I often think like that should be actually, I've mentioned that to Kevin a couple of times, like, wouldn't it be nice to have like the the dark side of, of being a founder. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, you, you hear, uh, yeah, you hear a lot about that. I mean, especially when you see like, why do startups fail? CB insights does these analyses a lot and it's literally like ran out of money problem with founders. (laughs) I mean, it's just two things that we always have a problem with. And because, you know, being a co-founder is like a, it's like a marriage and it's actually in some cases more intense because there's money on the line, there's ego and there's all sorts of things. And it's just, you know, it's such a, such a hard thing to kind of know if you're going to be doing something with someone kind of the, what, what are they all about? And, and, and so from that experience, what did you learn when it came to picking a founder or kind of the, you know, this is the entrepreneur ethos. So the kind of ethos that you look for, for co- with co-founders and kind of what you try to do? Yeah, well, I think um, it's a good question. I think it's <clears throat> twofold. One, I think it, it really, I mean, I'm a pretty optimistic person. I mean, recently I heard something, um, you know, I would also often say that I'm Pollyannic, right? And I know that's in some regards, like I would call that a positive thing where other people use that word as, you know, being too optimistic um, is not necessarily the... Um, the right, right lens to have, but you know, it served me well as a, you know, as a professional, as an entrepreneur, and, and certainly as a parent. So, um, you know, it's it's something that um, you know I think about. But what I learned was that uh, um, it's important to be realistic, but it's also important to keep your eyes moving forward and not to kind of um, look back and think about um, what, uh, not beat yourself up about the problem. Um, and I think that's one of the things I've heard about the, the kind of leaders in innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, people have made great companies is that they have this relentless um, belief that they can overcome any obstacle, right? So even when the, when that happened, you know, we um, it wasn't an immediate um, collapse of that company, but it, where the writing was on the wall, like any you know <laughs> any relationship ending. Um, but it, it definitely um, gave me some kind of real world cachet, but it didn't change my my kind of um, perseverance and belief that anything was possible. And that's continued in a variety of other, you know, projects. And you no, know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I learned my lesson fully in that moment. I have had um, other startups where um, even you know even crazier um, uh, founder issues. But I moved from there and ended up working in a um, running a 3D scanning company where we were making a desktop 3D scanner using photogrammetry. We were taking, um, we had a, 
a small box that took images from different elevations while it rotated. We um, used the application, we used photogrammetry where we stitched images together and we were making um, a scanner that would scan an ear impression so that we could then 3D print an ear impression, customize it and give and provide um, custom tips for any um, listening device. Mm -hmm. And this was an interesting problem that a lot of everybody complains about what they put in their ears, you, even you know now, but what we learned is that you know, people like Apple started to make things like I'm wearing right now, that it mattered less. They stayed in your ears a little bit better and was somebody really gonna go through the whole process of getting a physical ear impression from an audiologist having it scanned and then having a 3D print. Um, but, but you know, I mean, maybe one day and wearables are certainly um, an application in that. But from there I worked and um, and in that startup, I worked with a co-founder where we had some, um, where I would say it was almost like a Game of Thrones. All of a sudden one day <laughs> I was called in before my, my board and they were like, um, uh, there's some conversation about removing you as the CEO of the company. And I was like, Holy cow! Like wow. I didn't, you know, wow. yeah, and you know, I had some, I had some like spidey sense tingling, but yeah, in the end, the board was um, really believed in what I was doing in the direction that I was taking the company, and it was more of just kind of a way to check in. Yeah, um, but I think that was where I was kind of like, you know, what from this point forth, I really want to choose people that um, there's a, I think that there's always going to be tension in running, in working with people, in running companies and creating, you know, um, products and services that don't exist. But I think you can find people that you're more, there's a, a greater ease, there's more fluidity with. <clears throat> and that's definitively what I've started to look for in the people that I've worked with. And so w when you say ease and fluidity is, how does that manifest itself? It's <clears throat> sort of the, what are the traits that seem to resonate with that? Well, I, I think definitely transparency, you know, um, you know, when you start, I think early on, you, <clears throat> there's some idea that um, you have to have all the answers, right? And um, there can't be, I think there's a, there's two things. One is we don't ever have all the answers, right? We have to ask the right questions to get to these answers. And, um, you know, there's this, I come, my background is not a technical background. I come from a background um, in humanities, and I studied um, English and religion. <laughs> and there was this fame. English this and religion. Fame. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and, and even I also have a master's in Buddhist psychology. You know, on whoa, top of that. So, whoa. But, but that, but that becomes relevant in my in my current projects, which I'll tell you about yeah, for sure. No, I'm looking forward to that. <clears throat> but um, one of the things I would there was this um, theologian, this guy named Paul Tillich, who basically talked about doubt and faith and he said if you don't have you know little faith i'm sorry little doubt means little faith great doubt becomes great faith and so i think that you know that's some a driving kind of thought that i often have is that you know it's okay to have a lot of doubt in what you're doing because it actually forces you to kind of think about how you're going to solve these problems <clears throat> are you solving them in the, in the right way um and so getting to your point about ease and fluidity with with teams and with founders co-founders i think you look for somebody that um you can have these kind of conversations with you can unpack what the problems are um you can hear other people's opinions but you can come together to make the right decision you know so it's transparency it's lack of ego um and and it's also finding people that um i think 
everybody has different kind of leadership and personality styles. Um, I, I much prefer to work with people that um, are more um, compromising than, um, you know, feel like you should just have like, you know, some conflicts and then figure out what, what the outcome is, you know, a little bit more of um, collaboration mm -hmm. than competition. So. Mm -hmm. More, more collaborative, more transparent. So, wow. So English and theology. Reli more religion than theology. More yeah. religion. What, what's yeah. the difference between like religion studies and theology? I thought they were the same. I think theology is like, is more about the um, application of religion. Oh, right. So I think okay. if you're, if you're like a theologian, you're probably somebody who, that, that's studying like, um, the way that religion is transacted, right? And religious studies is more studying the what it's more of like history or the philosophy of religions. And I studied more on the philosophy of religions. Um, and then later on went to the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Yeah, um, I'm familiar. I got I, I got a Buddhist a master's in Buddhist psychology there. Um, you know, it was it definitely underlined my one of the things that I'm most interested in um, historically and, and, and working more um, and currently in the space that I'm working in is more on how um, our thoughts affect our well-being, right? So this kind of what I like to call this health, happiness, and hope space. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's super relevant to Buddhist psychology um, and mindfulness. And, and you know, I noticed that one of the things I've um, enjoyed is um, your weekly sharing of what we're grateful for yeah. you know it's these little it's these little things that i think connect us we can see like our commonality our human our, our humanity, humanity and other people you know, by sharing yeah exactly yeah yeah my 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 uh my fiance minerva is the one that turned me on to that <laughs> she uh she, she's actually gone to that taking <clears throat> seminars at the integrated is it california institute for integrated studies California Institute of Integral Studies. Yeah. Studies. She's yeah. taken some classes there because uh, yeah. uh, there's they have a lot of like um, there's a lot of trauma people go through there about mm -hmm. how mindfulness yep. and, and it's, yep. it's yep. really 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 fascinating stuff because you know I, I do agree that your thoughts impact how you feel and there's a there's actually a psychologist named uh, Bessel Bessel van der Kolk and he wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's about how trauma gets internalized into your body. I mean, I paraphrase. It's he's yep. he's like one of the he's <clears> like <throat> the Elvis of trauma, or one of the Elvises mm -hmm. of trauma. Uh, but his his whole thing was that yeah, when you experience something traumatic, it goes in your body, and you feel this weird sense of you know it just you don't know what it is. But the other thing that he 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 said is that if you talk about a traumatic experience without having the, your body settle down, you re-experience the trauma. So mm -hmm. even though you're talking about these words, you're still feeling it. And that, when I went through um, the, the death of my wife, my late wife, Jane, it, I, my God, I felt it everywhere. And I'm like, why am I feeling so weird? So I can see how those, uh, what we talk to ourselves about, what we say, what we think can really like, f it, 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 it can make us sick. I mean, I know it made me sick, just f full stop. Cause the stress and all the cortisol and you just flooding your body with like, I got to get away. I got to get away. I got to get away. So, so how are you taking all that 
and and and, and yeah, actually, what, what are you working on that that kind of integrates all that together? Yeah, well, it's interesting. One one quick side note I'll say is that I'm fortunate because my wife is a neuroscientist at uh, at UC Berkeley. She's the science director at the Greater Good Happy uh, Greater Good Science Center um, wow. and studies the science and happiness. So. I'll just give a selfless plug that the Greater Good Science Center has a, a great Science of Happiness course. It's a free MOOC, um, and you know almost a million people have taken it worldwide. Wow, and it, it, cool. it addresses a lot of stuff around, you know, empathy, but gratitude. Like gratitude is is massive in this space, right? Um, just these gratitude practices are really grounding and you know link us to common humanity. Um, not you don't you don't feel good expressing gratitude the person you express gratitude feels good and they've started to do studies where that person who has had gratitude expressed to them actually start to feel more inclined to express gratitude at a tertiary level right so it's kind of like it's perfect right yeah it's a great ripple but um you know so at the so after my um my 3d scanning startup i ended up in uh, a 3d printing uh, accelerator in um San Leandro, and there were about it was the largest accelerator <clears throat> around 3D printing, the whole 3D design space. And I formed a company there called ODMS, which is called On Demand Manufacturing. And this was a really interesting company. Um, where this technology we licensed to some people in Detroit who are still using it, but we were 3D printing parts, and then we were burning them out and pouring them with um, metal. So we were combining 3D printing and uh, traditional metal casting um, to basically make parts that didn't exist in the world anymore. So we were partnering with shipping companies, um, oil and gas, classic cars. I mean, this was, um, people needed parts and there were not gonna be parts that were made um, in conventional manufacturing supply chains. What we found there was that 3D printing is incredibly complex. We would, in some iterations of our 3D printing, we had proprietary resin, proprietary process. Um, we could, um, it would take us five iterations to get a part that would pass, you know, ISO standards. Um, but in other parts that had complex geometries or thicknesses or thinnesses, um, it would take us 200 plus parts. So it was a very um, intensive um, engineering experience. And I would say the failure of that company was that we didn't have the engineering, we, we didn't engineer the process. Um, um, and maybe it was impossible because um, one day we're going to 3D print the parts directly, but between a, a 3D print and burning out that part and then pouring it with metal that's at 3000 degrees, um, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong. But, um, <laughs> yeah, hot metal for but, sure. <laughs> but I had a great, I had a great, yeah, exactly. I had a great team. That should have been our motto. Like ODMS, <laughs> hot, hot metal. Hot metal. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like a rock band, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, you know, I had some great founders in that company and, you know, we moved that project forward. But at the end of last year, you know, when that we, we closed down that company and licensed our technology, uh, I decided that I really wanted to get back into this um the space I had started in this health, happiness, and hope space. And I was fortunate to attend this. Um, there's a great group in, called the Transformative Technology Lab. Um, they are basically looking at how technology transforms our human experience, mostly around well-being. And so um, I was part of a, a virtual accelerator. And I um, came across, there were and there was, I, I was just so um, kind of inspired by the 
products and services that people were developing. So there were, you know, other things like you might would like Calm and Insight and head, um, Headspace, Insight Timer and Headspace like meditation apps. But there was a whole kind of second and third level of products and services. Like there were music apps for people with Alzheimer's and the way that um, music is stored in the brain is different than the way that traditional memories are stored in the brain. So they were finding that music for people with Alzheimer's was um, making them happier, right? That we can see this with anybody that we've known that has had that experience, but it was actually allowing them to recall memories that they hadn't um, experienced because the music would kind of um, activate different parts of the brain. So it wasn't just that. I mean, it was, re um, it was um, there were a lot of wearables, so um, heart rate, um, things that measured your heart rate, wearables for neurotech, all this different stuff. So um, what I was surprised was, is that most people had never heard of a lot of these companies and a lot of these products and services with, that were developed. So I um, met somebody that I founded this company that we call Well, so it's W with a three LL. And basically what we're building here is a well-being marketplace. So we are um, bringing people in where we do um, some measure of what we call their well-being quotient um, based on a, um, a number of different kind of intakes. So some of it could be, um, you know, a survey, some could be quiz. We have some pattern recognition tools. Ultimately, we'll want to build in some other stuff. But the gist is that you um, get a score for your well-being. And then we use a um, recommendation engine that we put together to match you with products and services um, that would benefit your specific um, well-being need. And then we come back and we measure the impact. So if you were a senior, we might have recommended that you do like a gratitude journal and you use this music app. And then we come back and we measure in a month or two months. Um, did you feel like you're happier? Do you feel like you're less lonely? You know, that kind of stuff. So we started, um, that was a big project. Um, and what we found was that the entire well-being marketplace um, what we, that we needed to start, like we all know as entrepreneurs, was something that's um, actionable. So we worked in senior well-being um, mm. uh, at the end of last year into the beginning of this year. And we were actually putting together a marketplace just for seniors related to loneliness as a well-being issue. Um, Obviously, with when uh, COVID came along, our access to the people we were testing with um, uh, kind of dried up a little bit, yeah. and um, we had we had to make some pivots. But we've made some really interesting pivots around the COVID nineteen space. Yeah, well, I mean, loneliness is a big deal. Uh, you would think we would be more connected with all this digital stuff, but it seems that we just get more and more lonely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I know. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, Marv, who lives in Vegas, and he's trying to bring uh, a lot of his bridge friends. He, he plays bridge. He's yeah. the youngest yeah, guy. Yeah. It's like 55, 56, you know? Yeah. But they yeah. used to go to the bridge club together and like play, yeah. and that was their that was their socializing. They don't can't do that anymore. Exactly. And I do know that a lot of uh, senior folks get really depressed as they get older. And it, it, it's probably a combination of a lot of different things, but it's, you know, that is such a powerful thing to, for health. You find that when you ha stop having the will to live, your health starts to deteriorate or you don't have a mission or you don't have, you're not, you know, you, you know, a lot, a lot of people, 
you know, when they retire, you know, they retire and they're like, now what? And then they go burn through all the stuff they wanted to do in a year. And they're like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, cause there's no meaning. Exactly. There's no meaning. So yep. are, so what, what have been some of the pivots that you've had to adjust given that you can't physically go see them anymore? Well, what we decided to do was to focus on um, a couple um, um, smaller projects that we're calling mini wells. Mm. And so <clears throat> the way that we're doing this is, um, you know, as part of, um, I'm also, um, you know, I've been uh, on the growth chair of the Founders Network before. I'm also a chapter leader for transformative technology in Berkeley, California. But one of the things that I thought would be a kind of great growth hack way to kind of blend all this stuff together was to basically create mini wells around issues that are emergent during COVID-19. So um, what we're doing is we are putting these, um, we're just in the process in the last maybe like three weeks of putting together these webinars. So that we're going to put together um, a webinar with four people that are kind of um, influencers, academics, or founders, or executives within companies that provide products to seniors that we feel like would support um, senior uh, well-being or senior resilience during COVID-19. We're going to have a panel discussion where we talk about the science of kind of senior well-being, like what are some of the triggers, like you said, you know, once you lose hope, you know, you know, what, what, you know, how can you address this loss of hope before it becomes a problem? You know, loneliness, I think, is the biggest thing and, and access um, to uh, a social network, right? And so, my mom is, um, you know, lives alone in Oregon and, you know, has had those experiences where she used to go out and play bridge and mahjong and other things like that. These things just aren't on the table for people anymore. And so, um, you know, one of the things we want to, and, and there's a, there's a fair amount of emergent technology um, that, you know, bring people together in these more curated social forums. And, you know, one of the issues with seniors is that there it has to be, really kind of bulletproof for seniors, right? It has to be big font, um, you know, not a lot of other stuff. Sesame going on. Street like, simple we, is what I call it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, what we found when we did our first kind of MVP of our app was that they didn't care about the science of why it worked. All they really cared for when we were talking about a product, product or service was did another senior that they could relate to um, have a positive experience with it. And so, you know, that's what our, our user interface or user experience was, was basically here are the products and here are what seniors like you are saying about this. And we found that that tracked really well. Like we had had all this like videos of TEDx talks and like the science of all this other stuff. Didn't that care. really was important to millennials. Like yeah. when we, when we tested millennials, they were like, we don't really care about the review. We were more, they cared a little bit about the review, but they really wanted to know like, What's the science of why, how that the brain, how music is affecting the brain, right? How sound is affecting the brain. So, um, you know, so we're putting these um, these panels together and basically we're creating these little curated lists of um, products and services that would support well-being for seniors um, in COVID-19 for adolescents because um, I have a sophomore uh, uh, um, a daughter that's a sophomore, a daughter that's uh, a seventh grader, and a son who's seven. And I was shocked. You know, I reached out to my to Berkeley High School and I said, you know, what kind of virtual resources do you have about the science, like the science of happiness, the stuff my wife talks about for adolescents, you know, emotional resilience for adolescents. And None. they, you know, they they didn't have anything. I reached out to Outward Bound. Um, I have a contact at Outward Bound thinking, 
now they might be kind of filling the space in Outward Bound as the, you know, the school that teaches kind of resilience and wilderness and, and things like that. And they thought, they said to me, this is a great question. You know, we hadn't really thought about it. About a week later, I got an email from the director of Outward Bound San Francisco. And she said, oh, here's something that the Chesapeake Bay, Maryland chapter, like that's where, that's where it grew out of. It wasn't out of like, you know, Los Angeles or San Francisco. Here's somebody who's curated um, a group, a collection of resources, digital resources for you. So we're looking at providing, looking at problems uh, related to COVID-19 that affect different demographics and launching these mini wells. And from a, um, a startup perspective, it's working great because we under, we learn a lot about these individual ecosystems that are all part of the, the what will ultimately become well. It gives us access to incredible products and services to all the people that we need to know. Um, and it allows us to test, you know, what delivery works best for different kinds of people. So it, it's a really great, um, you know, kind of growth hack that we just kind of uh, emerged out of all this, you know, COVID stuff. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I never thought, wouldn't wouldn't have thought to do that. But, but I can see how, I can see how that's like, uh, kind of like breaking the problem into parts and so that now you're like just focused on seniors like okay now how do we do the seniors and then and even with the adolescents it's really interesting because um the response from school districts has Mm -hmm. been even within the same school district depending on the school about like this whole distance learning and it's been all over the map i mean i i know no people that have that have been telling me like oh yeah no the teacher keeps them on zoom for five hours a day and you're like, wow, I can't even do that. You know, or here they give us a bunch of workbooks and then we have to turn them in or something. I mean, the, the the variety is pretty crazy. I mean, there's a, there's actually a nonprofit out of Berkeley, California called uh, writer coach connection that I actually happen to be helping out right now. And they were in-person coaches for writing. So Mm -hmm. for middle school to high school, Right. And uh, they had to absolutely pivot to online because most of their coaches are more senior, like the seniors in your demo. Yeah, which and is a great use of seniors. Right. right? Uh, no, I mean. it's fantastic. And then the kids, right, are middle school to high school. But what, what this move, and they literally did this within the last four or five weeks. I mean, it's incredible what they've done. And yeah. I'm trying to actually help them get the word out. And we're, we're doing some uh, marketing and PR for them. But what's, what's, beautiful about that particular thing is that the reason why seniors want to coach kids is like one they feel important you know they're teaching the knowledge and that's really important but what the kids get out of it is a different perspective and as well as another caring adult that wants to help them and so you kind of nail two birds with one stone so to speak right both parties in this mentor coaching, it's actually more of a coaching relationship, not a mentors. Both in this coaching relationship get huge amount of not only social interaction, but knowledge and everyone feels good. Uh, and it's a good, obviously a great organization that everyone should obviously support. And if you have kids, you know, definitely check out Writer mm-hmm. Coach yeah. Connection. Um, what what have you found has been sort of the tools that in these little mini wells that have kind of bubbled to the top? Well, I mean, I, I, I would, you know, the other thing that, the other reason I really like this mini well is that 
we we know that we're gonna um we're not gonna have all the answers to how we deploy a well-being marketplace. I mean, that's like a that's like a Herculean effort, right? To make um like what's part Yelp, part TEDx, and part Amazon, right? All all rolled into one that appeals to everybody and resonates with everybody. So we there's a couple of things. One is that we feel like if we can provide these mini wells, and you know maybe that's where we end up, right? With senior well-being, right, or as adolescent well-being. Um, but recently there was this um, uh, um, infographic going around. I can't remember the name of the group. It's called. It's basically like these. Um, I'll, 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 I'll try to remember a second, but it showed the, um, maybe you've seen it and you can help me remember, but it showed the way that different um, age demographics were consuming information around COVID-19. Um, and uh, it was fascinating, right? Because when you speak about the tools we need, it really shows you how fragmented the outreach is going to be. We can't figure out one way, one methodology to reach um, one group. So for like for seniors, Right. We found that right now seniors are getting it on TV, on the radio and in print media and obviously Facebook. Right. Um, along those lines. Uh, but but they've actually gone back to the things that they grew up with that, that were, were historically relevant. Right. They're listening to the radio. Like I know this from talking to my mom. She'd like, I was watching the local news. I was like, oh, please don't watch the local news. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, I feel like you're going to get, like, you're just going to be sensationalized. She's right? going to spin you up. Just don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but the other thing that, that was interesting was this whole, um, about how you're reaching um, millennials and how you're reaching, um, you know, other, you know, like high school uh, generations, right? So when you're looking, when we're looking to position well-being resources, you know, we're looking at having to go into like Instagram and TikTok, even right, yeah. literally to go into TikTok with, and people are doing that right now. Snapchat, you know, had a um, launched a kind of um, emotional well-being kind of um, um, project a while back before COVID nineteen because they knew that they had this captive audience. So it's forced us to really examine uh, using a lot of different tools. So um, you know, we've Put a, we've developed a few mock-ups and prototypes, but at this point, what we really want to look at is we have that we will we have the information and we'll continue to have the information curated and consolidated for different groups. But every time we want to take that information to somebody, we have to look at the strategy of how we're going to reach those people, and um, that's been an interesting dilemma to solve. Right? I mean, I mean. I don't have a TikTok account. Right? Um, <laughs> I can't even figure out Snapchat, let alone TikTok. Yeah. Are you right. So, 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 so it's really, you know, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, to that end, what, one of the things we've done is um, getting back and, and I highly recommend this. Um, I've, I've placed, you know, over 500 interns, either uh, college students or master's students, sometimes even PhDs that are looking for, real world experience in startups and um and i would say um you know a third of them you know it doesn't work that well a third of them do what you tell them to do well enough a third of them like take it to the next level and then um or i'm sorry 30 percent of each you know 30 percent do not so good 30 percent do a decent job 30 percent do exceed your expectations and then 10 percent just like knock it out the park and um what we've in this kind of COVID time, we were, um, I've been um, recruiting on AngelList and Handshake and on our own websites. And I have a, a, a 
incredible group of people who really want real world experience because you can't go out and get an internship this summer, right? No, and and startups are are really well positioned to yeah. um to not say like, well, I don't know how to do that. You know, we've been, we're we're virtual to begin with, right? So one of the things we've done for these mini wells is trying to find people that and we have a few other ones. Like one of the other ones we're doing is um how sound there's a lot of well-being technology in it that uses sound and music. So like different frequencies of sound played into your head your ear your earphones, your headphones, um, will cause your brain to to become more relaxed. You know, it could address pain areas within your brain. If you wanted to go for a run, it, it could amp you up. We all know this right from like the way that music makes us feel. Like yeah. Certain music can relax us, certain music can kind of pump us up and stuff like that. But um, another one is sleep. Like right now, sleep is Huge. really plaguing our our kind of, um, you know, this kind of PTSD around COVID and this uncertainty. So we have all these mini wells. And the other one is virtual reality and mental health. So we yeah. have a series of these mini wells that we're running. But we were looking to find people to take this information that knew how to, um, to, the, to best package this and deploy this. So we have some college students, some master's students that are actually working with us to figure out once we have these resources, how are we going to get them on Instagram? Excuse me. How are we going to find, how are we going to put them on Snapchat? You know, how are we going to put them on TikTok? So it's, it, you know, I would say it's going to be an incredible experience, um, an experiment. But by the time we're done in two or three months, we're going to really have learned how to best position this information, what what resonates with people in terms of the resources that we're sharing. And I think it'll allow us to go back and build um, this marketplace, um, you know, based on all the insights that we've gleaned at this point. Hmm. That's, uh, you know, I never thought about the different modalities for different generations. Yeah, I, mean, I hadn't either. <laughs> I sort of, I mean, I sort of do this PR and marketing thing for a living now, like I fell into it, right? But I, huh. So, huh. Well, I need to think about that a little bit more because I, I, I do find that the consumption of information, depending on your background, uh, is really important. So the whole thing about, I, I think what you mentioned about, well, seniors want to know that other seniors like it. So the testimonial thing is like, if you were to rank it, it's like number one, like I just, does someone like me like this? Whereas a millennial or even a, you know, Gen Z may just be like, well, show me the data. Like, come on, I can look this stuff up. Right. Cause of exactly fake news or whatever, or I don't trust authority. I mean, it's maybe there's just some generational yeah. cycle. Cause I mean, I got to believe that back in the sixties and stuff what people didn't believe, you know, the elders, Maybe we're sort of coming full circle. <laughs> I don't know. It is pretty fascinating how that works. Um, have you heard of a book called Softwired? No. So uh, I went to a talk, and I'm gonna. I'm. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce his last name because it's really. <laughs> it's really hard. But his. He wrote this book. He's a professor at UCSF. I think his mm -hmm. name is Michael, if I'm not mistaken. And again, his last name I don't remember, but. No. Um, he worked on the cochlear implant. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know about cochlear implant. That's where yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. people that are deaf. Mm -hmm. Well, they were like, well, how do how does the brain adapt to this cochlear implant? What kind of stimulus? And it turns out that there was a bunch of these teams all over the world working on this cochlear implant. And they were all doing it different ways. But they were all getting the same results. That the brain was 
had elasticity or was pla- you know plasticity and that it would just figure out what it was um and he he did a talk at the commonwealth club in san francisco i think it was in february or february right before the shutdown <laughs> uh t- turns out that minerva went to to school with his daughter so we got to see them but the thing that you were mentioned about um you know information and you know, rewiring the brain. His research is really fascinating, I think. And I'll, I'll send you the link. I'll put a link in the show notes too. He he would be a good one to like understand how the, how to change the wiring. So um, he talks about music. He talks about how to do habits and how your brain, you can learn at any age, your brain's plastic. And that Alzheimer's and all these sort of things are, are you descend into it because you're not exercising your brain basically. Um, and he, he has a pretty, some, a lot of really good stories in there. Um, but it is fascinating how people are really now starting to understand how the brain works and it is not necessarily something that you're stuck with. (laughs) So, and and maybe hopefully, you know, these mini wells, my guess is that you're going to find all this stuff out and probably some super surprising things as well. Yeah. Well, I think definitely, I, I and I think the other, the other, um, area that I, I'm interested in this is that because we're in a new age where um, I, I think there's this reset and you know you I've heard you talk about this a little bit in some of the other stuff that you've done on founders network and and you know one of those organizations that I that I really um, follow that I, I take a lot of um, kind of thought uh, inspiration from is singularity University mm-hmm. um, I feel like um, these guys are really talking about the, what the world needs to look like after uh, COVID nineteen in terms of like um, the what what work's going to look like you know how we're gonna um, how we need to um, reskill people that are going to be replaced with automation but specifically also uh, and educational platforms but specific to what we're talking about some more of these kind of soft skills like empathy you know it's going to be and and gratitude right empathy like it, there's a big movement right now within trans tech, within singularity, within the work that my wife, um, the space my wife works in, that in order for us to kind of come together, and we see this with all the bad stuff that happens with COVID where, you know, people are being marginalized and we're not finding our greatest humanity, that um, empathy is going to be really important. And I think this is an interesting question that you, you frame here is that Empathy means different things to different people across generations, right? Yep. And when when we have this kind of social experiment happening with the teens of the world right now, where you know we're evolved actually to be in real world conversation and contact with people, you know, the way that we look at faces, the way we read people's body language and stuff like that. You know, already I've noticed with my kids, right? Like they, this is, you know, they're reading the body language on TikTok, right? And they're, you know, on all these other social platforms. So. I think that it's going to be interesting over time. I, I do think that it is a shift. Maybe like there has been shifts over the 1920s and 50s and 60s and you know so on, all, you know all the way up. But I, I do think it's going to be interesting. Um, and one of the, the themes that I keep hearing it, within Singularity that I really like is that it's not that there's too much information. It's that we have a failure to filter, right? Mm. And I like that term because um, yeah, to curated. me that's like. Yeah. Exactly. Curated information you know, is going to be critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's going to solve a lot of the problems we're having right now. We can't expect to reach teens in these conventional ways and be like, Hey, you know, this is how it is guys. Like 
come along, we actually have to redesign the frameworks and the platforms with which they consume information. And I, I think this is the reset that's you know happening, and it's driven both by people in innovation and tech, but also by you know teens kind of figuring out you know what resonates with them. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I think we definitely need to rethink how we communicate and how we're going to consume information. And uh, I'm certainly very excited to see what you guys have in store. It's super cool. And, uh, you know, Ben, I really appreciate you being on the podcast, get to know you a little bit more. And, uh, yeah, keep keep me posted, stay safe, and uh, we'll get through it all. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate the time, and um, I look forward to hearing more of these founder stories, these little snapshots for sure. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting thedailymba.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter, at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest that you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about in this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. At CVS Health Hub, you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab what you need all in one trip even on evenings and weekends. That's healthier made easier. Visit a CVS Health Hub today. Services vary by location. See cvs.com slash health hub for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.